0: listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu.
1: Live Uncommon.
0: We are continuing our conversation in church music history. 100 years of church music history in the LCMS with Benjamin Kologi. He is church organist and musicologist and our friend here on The Coffee. I think I can say that now, right? Yeah. Our he also friend.
1: has like a ton of hymnals and I'm really jealous.
0: Yes. yes I like can a, visit
2: anytime. I, I want to. How
0: ma- do you know how many you have in your collection of My hymnels? computer
2: does because my inventory is on there, but I haven't asked it lately. It's hundreds and hundreds. So your computer has. I love it. Well, I inventory. write it in, in the That's bibliography smart. every time I get one, but I haven't counted lately. You kind of That's struck me as
0: maybe a card catalog sort of person. <gasps> No? Do you have yeah. a card catalog
2: of them, too? I, I don't. I okay. Don't. I, I I do like paper. You're correct. But <laughs> space concerns are such the card catalog it. are always impractical.
0: Oh, All right, right. I at, love it. Looking at 100 <laughs> years of church music history, the first 100 years of church music history in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which actually, if we're talking about the early years, we have to use the full name, the Evangelical oh, yeah. Lutheran Church of
1: Missouri, Missouri. Ohio, and other states. Yes. But you got to say it in German, too. Yes.
0: I can't. So... <laughs> So we've taken a look at just maybe a decade or so of the, that first 100 years. And one point from last time that I wanted to revisit mm. was how important music was, how important making music is, that, that education mm. included music for all students, no matter where you were going or what your future vocation was, making music was a part of that education. And I just wanted to compare that to where we are today and the role of music in the family, in the congregation, mm. in education. You know, today we, we listen to music for entertainment. In, at the time that, that we're looking at, in the, the mid-1800s, making music was an important part of family life, even, mm-hmm. Not just the the church on Sunday morning. I just wanted your thoughts on that, on comparing the the role of music in so many different aspects of life then versus now.
2: Well, and I have to contain myself because this question could be a whole dissertation. I, it's, it's hard for me to be objective because you've sure. you've alluded to the fact that we're now consumers of music. We yeah. don't make it ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's not where we come from. Uh, we buy music. We listen to it nonstop stop maybe, mm-hmm. but it's not something that has the emphasis in schools or in our families or even churches. I mean, where do we sing communally? Maybe the ball games I don't know <laughs> church, hopefully mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of that that's left, and Carl Schalk had said something one time about uh, about um, you know music church music being essentially of the people mm-hmm. liturgical mm-hmm. in a way like folk music but not not from the top down not by recording companies or publishers inflicted upon us you know that's new that's new i mean yeah bach publishes music so he could earn some money the great composers all did but that's that's something different now we have giant Huge mega corporations determining our tastes, and all based on wanting uh, economic concerns. And I, th- I think that's new. I, that's that's a challenge. It's taken away music from our daily lives. Maybe kind of segues to what I did want to talk about in terms of liturgical music education, mm-hmm. and that would be the founding of the Addison Seminary. Oh yeah, which. The Addison Seminary eventually became Concordia River Forest, Concordia Chicago. Yeah. But it was founded in the 1860s as, like we were talking about in Germany, the the musicians would be trained classically. Well, they needed an institution here also to train. So it was founded in Addison, um, Illinois. Originally, there was two professors and some rickety buildings. And <laughs> these these boys would come from... Who knows where? And it was actually in the midst and right after the Civil War, so it wasn't just boys. It was there was records of of, of veterans who were missing arms and legs, still coming, wanting to do something different with their lives, to, to, with their lives to make a difference. And you know, 30 years old, coming to study for to be a Lutheran school teacher, which is what Addison's established to do. So it was originally two teachers and the. The point was to teach the classics, classic Greek, Latin, writing, penmanship, arithmetic, then music, organ, piano, violin. Mm -hmm. And then after a course of a number of years, some of them elected to become pastors. Some of them could be called out to be the uh, teacher, musician in the parish. So that was a way in which music was integrated into the life of the church through their through their training institution.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting at, at that time, the time period we're talking about, mid-1800s, like the only music that people had in their homes was music that, that they made. Mm-hmm. They made. So in order to have that, like we don't have, can I call that a luxury? We don't have that anymore. Like, we can consume somebody else's. They had to consume, if they wanted it, they had to, they literally had to
0: do it in order it's to It's not, not have the music. norm anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There are families that do it, but it's it's not the norm. It's not Let's average Bring back today. the
1: family hymn sing. Yeah. I'm all about that. Let's do it. So sorry, I just had to, wanted to throw that point in there, but I think along with what you're saying about the the Addison Seminary, now that the LCMS is founded, how did that affect the church music, the formation? The seminary is part of that, but nearing the turn of the century, then in the in the late 1800s, what did that landscape kind of look like for? how music education was happening and how music was happening in churches.
2: Well, I think a very salient point is every church was to have a school. Hmm. It was not optional. You know, you had to, It now that's not so much the case, but mm-hmm. back then it the school was not a luxury. It was a necessity. Hmm. And many of these churches were out in the country. There was no education, educational opportunities otherwise. Yeah. So it was very practical. So if you were going to have a church and the church had a school then you had to have a pastor and you had a teacher. You have to, so that's essentially the ideal. Of course this didn't always work itself out like this in real life. <laughs> but the ideal was you had a individual pastor and you had an individual teacher and the teacher would be in charge of music. So and and church church music too. School singing and and church music. So the Through the late 19th century, the Addison Seminary became more adept and cultivated into shaping their graduates as to what was needed. So, like, there was was a number of people. Carl Brower. I wanted Mm -hmm. to bring him up because he was the first – well, he was the first music, full-time music professor in the LCMS – he came in, I think it was 1867, to Addison. He was the third professor, only the third professor. Can you imagine that? Uh, the fine. third, only the third professor <laughs> is the full time musician. That's how important this music was to these people. And he wrote a lot. All, all of the professors did in the Schulblatt. It's, it's the it it was the the paper of Addison. It eventually became Lutheran education and. It's it's still published in its American form, It's huh. English form, I should say. But they would write and they would teach. Uh, Karl Brauer was the first one to, the first professor to do this. He was he died. He retired in 1897, and he was followed by a fellow called Georg Kapell, K A P P E L L. Huh. And interestingly. I, I played at the sem- I played a concert at the seminary yesterday, and I played three of Capel's pieces because. I just wanted to, you know. (laughs) Of course. Why not? (laughs) I've I've been, I've been, (laughs) his music doesn't exist much anymore. You you can't go out and buy his music on Amazon or anything. It's not there. But, but I, I, I have some in my, in my archive at home. And so I, I played some. It's very romantic sounding. It sounds a little bit like Brahms or Mendelssohn, Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that style. But actually, Capel was wanted to instill in his students at Addison the importance of bach and mm. the early the those musicians from two centuries before or um, you yeah, know 150 years whatever it is that the importance of bach the church music counterpoint and capel actually was one of the first concert organists in the lcms who actually was good enough to perform concerts not just to play for church but I, throughout the 19th century it was always important that each student learned not only to teach school, but to play the, play the organ, piano, and violin. The violin requirement was uh, um, d- done away with in 1905. Hmm. You, think, you think, why violin? Well, if a pastor or teacher were called to many of these churches in the mid-19th century, they probably didn't have an organ. They probably didn't even have a piano. Mm-hmm. They might have even just been meeting under a tree at yeah. first. So a non-keyboard instrument is, would be very helpful to play. So that's why that viol- so it was it was removed in 1905 because at that point pretty much everybody had a church building and uh, but that's how hmm. music was promulgated and it was um, important.
0: I'm sad that the violin kind of went away.
2: I know. You it's know, it's still in classical
1: education though in yeah. a lot of those classical schools they they have to learn it. It, it, it's a mixed
2: blessing, though,
1: because
2: oh. I, cause I have to take I have I have to be devil's advocate here <laughs> for, for many years. Even at Seward and in, in Concordia, Chicago, it was a requirement that you take organ. And that's great in many cases because many great organists were produced that way. However, if you're not really into that, that's not your thing. Organ really takes a lot of your life, yeah, and it can be frustrating and can take a lot of your time and i I'm afraid that there were probably lots of organists who were produced which shouldn't have been playing the organ. they write about that I'm they should not, have been I, playing the violin instead <laughs> or Maybe. they should have been playing nothing possibly <laughs> and, and there's certainly articles in the nineteenth century about about raising the level of performance so on the one wow. hand, it is really good that many people. Students found a new skill, developed their skill. On the other hand, there's that reality that maybe some of them just shouldn't have been playing organ, and they didn't do a, you know, it maybe wasn't the best thing for them. And and that's, you know, it's that's something that they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. They and they dealt with that by publishing music. So Capel published music. Get more into the 20th century. We had. Albert Beck, some of those people mm-hmm. publishing practical music that was easy but still lovely enough that an organist, a reluctant, let's call them a reluctant church musician. <laughs> a reluctant organist. And I I, I I look even let's 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 just say the, the enthusiastic church musician. I mean, looking at their schedules in the nineteenth century, they were teaching from sunup to sundown, Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday was spent preparing for church, practicing. Sunday was church because you usually had a service in the morning and a service in the evening or in the afternoon. These people had no free time. So even though I say there's some reluctant organists who probably shouldn't have been playing, I mean, you understand why that is. They didn't have time to hone their skills. Mm. (laughs) I love it.
0: We (laughs) are learning about the first 100 years of church music history in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Missouri Synod with Benjamin Koloji. Today, we'll continue the conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: welcome back to the coffee hour i'm andy bates
1: i'm sarah Golseth.
0: we are learning about the first 100 years of church music history with benjamin kloji today in what is growing into a series i think Mm. it's maybe a 100 part series yeah (laughs) i'm up for that or maybe just a few episodes (laughs) so we've made it let's see up to addison seminary teacher seminary concordia which eventually became concordia university concordia teachers college and concordia mm-hmm. university river forest now concordia university chicago yeah and we could i'm sure spend about 30 episodes just talking about the development of lutheran church workers through that but let's see we left off with who did we leave off with oh the name escapes me now capel i think is where we left off okay any more about capel or do you want to move on to other church musicians
2: mm. Well, so Capel represents that change from the 19th to 20th century. Hey, we made it. Because mm. he he's hired in 1897, and he spans the transition uh, when they move from Addison to Chicago in 1914. And he continues to teach until his death, which I think was 1934. So he's kind of that transitional person. But something also really important happened during this time, too, and that was the transition to English. Right. Uh, you remember? Well, we don't remember, but <laughs> <laughs> we Is know what, what happened. <laughs> and that was kind of important when it yeah. came to church music. So we talked earlier about CFW Valter's hymnal, mm-hmm. and that it was a text-only version of the Lutheran chorales and their original, original text to their original tunes the chorale, there were chorale books that were published to accompany the hymnal that the organist played from mm. the congregation didn't see the music mm-hmm. but these these were produced throughout the 19th century but of course in the late 19th century you begin to see this this movement toward english it it was it happened much before world war 1 most people think it happened then and then solidified with World War II, but it was it was already moving that way in the 1870s and 80s. But what that meant was that these Germans and Germans, d- these immigrants, these Germans didn't like to change. They <laughs> they liked the way they liked their Walter hymnal. They liked that once they knew how to sing it, they were going to sing the versions that they knew and there would be no changes. And of course, this was a problem. The other thing I should mention was that Walter had a liturgy that, that in his uh, Kirchenagenda from 1856 not of that matters but it was based on it was based on Luther's deutsche messa mm-hmm. this i know that's technical here but the deutsche messa basically and we we sing the Kyrie, we sing the gloria we sing the agnus dei the the deutsche Messe replaced those with hymns so you mm-hmm. replace Kyrie, God, Father, Son, Heaven, Above, or, and all glory be to God on high became the Gloria. That was Walther's preference, and he structured a liturgy very much around that. But in the uh, late 19th century, we we have developed the common service, which is what we know basically – the old 1941 hymnal TLH that was the common service that people love to love or love to hate you know that <laughs> but that was such an important hymnal but that was a common service that was very different than what these germans had been used to doing since the 1840s so that there was some there was some tension there mm-hmm. as the english developed not not only the translations of the hymns but into into an English sort of liturgy, which was not just a translation. It was a totally different form. And that Mm -hmm. common service, so when I say the common service, it's basically like Divine Service 3 in LSB or page 15. That common service represented a second strand of Luther's liturgical thinking. was a formula, technical, but it, it was a second strand. Luther had the two. So both are very Lutheran, and they're very faithful, but one the the, earl, the earlier one is preferred by Walter, and the the later Lutherans in the nineteenth century developed that common service. Although it was certainly uniquely American, there was mm. it was nothing there was nothing sixteenth century about its presentation. So there was some, as you imagine, tension around that, and when Concordius had to start publishing things, materials in English, and the like. So that was probably the next inflection point. He's like history.
1: Yeah, changing a language in a church body affects everything. And you've got to do all of that work to make all of those new resources and then also convince everyone to use them, which may have been the more difficult part of all of, all of that. That's a lot. That's a big culture shift mm-hmm. in a church body. What else did that affect? I mean, obviously the hymnal and liturgy. How else did that, that shift affect music and musicians in the early 1900s?
2: Well, I, this is maybe going into details too much, but it's really terribly interesting. Oh, good. Because <laughs> if you're an organist, if you're an organist, you play the, the, the Walter liturgy one way. And you play the common service liturgy a totally different way. And this is something that I had not realized until I decided a while ago that I'm going to approach this 19th century like I would when I go to a church on Sunday morning. I ask the pastor, it's, it's funny, you know, we talked about how the things that we do on a regular basis, we don't write down, we don't really think are that important, and we don't even notice. So when I go to a church and as a visiting organist, I have very specific questions that I ask. And I, I, I never, you know, the musician or the pastor, they live in that world. They don't understand. I'll, I'll have to ask this question specifically. And it's because oftentimes it's like, okay, after, after the sermon, do we go straight into the offertory or – yeah. Oh no, we always we always sing three verses of something else. And I think, like like everybody does this, you know. But you but don't know. Obviously, so you, so you local ask, traditions, you know, Yeah, you, you just you just you just know this. And and so I I, I thought, well, I'm going to approach this vulture liturgy the same way, asking these questions if I were going to play the service. And what I found, <laughs> what I found is that these services were pretty long, <laughs> and had lots to do with the music. Hmm. Some of these chorale preludes. That, we're used to our organists maybe playing the hymn through once before. These organists in the 19th century with a Walter liturgy could play five minutes worth, and it wouldn't necessarily even be based on the hymn tune. It could be secular music, just very odd. And we find in the 19th, late 19th century, they're writing, even the Addison, the Addison professors are writing, it would be best if organists played music before the hymn that was based somewhat on the hymn tune and avoid orchestral transcriptions or music. That's not related. But if you have to do that, at least make it, let it be in the spirit of the hymn. And I find that very odd. I mean, we would not think of that that way as an, as a little organist. Of course you learn the hymn prelude presents the tune, that the, 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 mel, the, the, the melody, the rhythm, the key, that was not the case. Uh, and if and if you think about it, they didn't. The congregation didn't really need a lot of introduction. They knew these yeah. tunes. Mm-hmm. It was ingrained. So so much of what the organist did was just kind of to set the mood for all these things and to play modulations and transitions. So <laughs> that was a, that was the the vulture liturgy kind of necessitated that. Whereas when we changed to the English, the Common Service, there was less of that. Although, if you're really nerdy and you've if you've heard on YouTube. The the recordings from the the records uh, in 1940 when TOH was released the, the records that were sent to the congregations you should look that up on YouTube oh yes the the it was done here in Saint Louis if 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 you listen to them you hear a bit of what I'm talking about you hear. Organist, the organist modulates and plays these transitions that we're not used to doing, you know, in order to provide a pitch for the next thing. It's just very complicated and a bit odd. And that was in 1940. That's modern times. But there's still vestiges of that performance practice.
0: Did you find actual records? These?
2: I have not found. I don't know. the Actual vinyl? No, but somebody did and put them. Carl Schalk told me about that YouTube video, and I found that somebody uh, has my, a record.
0: I, my guess is there's a really good chance that those were actually etched at KFUO.
2: Oh, yeah.
0: That,
1: oh, now I need to know that. <laughs> somebody at CHI must know this.
2: <laughs> you got to go to the archives because yeah. figure this out. We, we, we had yeah.
0: a machine. Mm-hmm. We don't use it anymore, but we had a machine. It may even be, I don't know, there may be some artifacts still over at Concordia Historical Institute. We we had one of the few machines for etching Mm -hmm. vinyl or records. Yeah, exactly.
1: Totally looking this up right now. Sorry, guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I don't have enough time to unpack another question in this episode, so we're just going to have to do another one. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Benjamin, for... Getting us through mm, about half of a hundred years,
2: <laughs> may uh, close. Close. Ah. We're making progress. We're
0: making progress. That's right. All right. We'll, we'll get in a, another episode looking at one hundred years, the first one hundred years of music history in the LCMS with Benjamin Kologi. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.